Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 154 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Robert Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday, February 19th, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, this podcast is more than just a piece of metal. <laughs> There's very little metal involved. Uh, well, the, the microphones, microphones are metal. The, microphones. The, the, the preamp is metal. My computer has some metal in it. Some metal, some rare earth minerals. But there are metal plates in my head. Are you saying that if the Astros cheat on this podcast, we shouldn't get too worked up about it? Or or, or we'll revoke the episode? We'll, we'll delete the episode from no, the no, library? No, we, we got immunity to, to provide this content in exchange for like, immunity. Like 230 immunity? Like the, the, the thing that DOJ is doing today? Right now, there are a lot of listeners who are like, what in the world are these so, guys talking so, about? So, I'm sorry. So, so Bobby and I, as, as I think you guys know, are both huge baseball fans. I think we've both been fascinated in different ways by the Astros cheating scandal, uh, which I should say, not not Astros only, but certainly Astros principally especially, so far, especially yeah. cheating scandal. Um, and one of the things that has fascinated me about the scandal, Bobby, is how preposterously poorly the response has been handled. Um, right. So uh, Jim Crane, the owner of the Astros, I think did no one any favors last week in contradicting himself within like 45 seconds at a press conference. Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, who has, you know, I think mostly avoided real bonehead moves in his tenure as commissioner, really stepped in it, I think, over the weekend when he, you know, dismissed concerns that other players have raised about the Astros 2017 trophy as, you know, who cares about the trophy? It's just a piece of metal. Ooh. Ooh, well, now we, he apologized for that yesterday. No, but like, rightly so. But but I mean, you know, guys, first rule of crisis management: manage the crisis. <laughs> well, there are a lot of lessons here. Let's unpack that in the frivolity, along yes. with uh, some other Picard. Uh, we got to talk Picard. I'm finally caught up, so we have several episodes to review. And then on an entirely non-frivolous, but nonetheless off-topic note, so we'll save it for the final section, um, we're going to talk about uh, things that are happening in the context of judicial clerkships Mm -hmm. uh, relating to the Me Too movement and and Judge Reinhardt. Um, And we'll get to all that after actually doing our day job. Well, it's not really our day job, is it? But it's what we pretend to be our day job. Our our third side job. Our third side job. The actual point of the show, which is to review the latest national security law developments. We've selected a few things this week. We're going to talk about the uh, Trump administration's filing, uh, providing us a little more formal insight into their legal positions on the airstrike in early January that killed General Soleimani, uh, the Iranian general, in Iraq. Speaking of post hoc rationalizations not going well. I don't know that I'd agree with the premise of your comment, but I appreciate the humor of it. Um, then there's the yeah, that that pretty much sums up a lot of our exchanges, doesn't it? Yes. Um, then we're going to talk about a DC Circuit case from several weeks back that is now beginning to get more attention because there are a number of groups that are increasingly riled up about it as they become aware of it. It's an opinion uh, that held that 18 U.S. Code Section 1114, the uh, the the federal offense of murdering U.S. murdering U.S. government officials, uh, doesn't apply extraterritorially, and and this produced a D.C. Circuit ruling that vacated the conviction of two men uh, convicted in relation to the murder of two uh, ICE uh, Homeland Security Investigations agents in an infamous episode in Mexico. Um, so we're going to talk about that in the resulting circuit split. Um, we're going to, of course, check in with Trumplandia because, you know, it's a week. Uh, this week we've got pardons. Boy, do we have some pardons to talk about. Pardon me? Pardon pardon the interruption. There's all sorts of ways to go with that. Oh, yeah, sure. uh, and then I'll, I'll take note real quick along the way at some point of a uh, 
a, a fascinating national security division announcement about the arrest of a, uh, a Mexican citizen who resides in Singapore, but was in the United States doing a sort of a Keystone Cops style bit of, of uh, uh, spying for the Russians, apparently, and kind of caught red handed in the whole deal. But it, it's easy to make fun of it, but it's also just a sign of the seriousness of the spy games that continue. And uh, then we'll get to that, all that frivolity and, and related stuff. Sound good? I guess. <laughs> or maybe good's not right there quite the right word what's the uh what's the 30 rock meme what a week eh lemon it's wednesday <laughs> it is wednesday all right let's talk about the soleimani filing and here i've what i've got is the uh the statutorily required uh statement to congress that the administration had to file um under 1264 section 1264 of God, I can't even remember which NDAA at this point. But this is not the War Powers Resolution notification. This is well, a separate... Si- side note. Yeah. Wouldn't it be... Mo- I mean, I, I, I'm in the middle in Briggs, right? I'm briefing all of these amendments to Article 43, right? And they're all in NDAAs. And it's like trying to keep the NDAAs separate. It's like, Congress, come on. I mean... What's the solution? Is it to... So so there are two possible solutions, Number right? them? So one is one is to they actually have names, right? Like one the John to, McCain. And well, yeah. so a couple of them do, but only a couple, right? So one of them is to actually give them proper names, right? And just like this year's NDAA is called the Bobby Chesney Act, right? Or the sold, right? Uh, but it's just like it, I realize this is a incredibly pedantic. No, it makes it very hard. It creates friction comment. for no good reason. But it just, it just it creates confusion, I think, for no good reason. Where and the other problem is that like the NDAAs are for fiscal years, and so the year of enactment isn't even necessarily I know, that's the part that makes it really right? hard. So yeah. sometimes, like the FY two thousand and four NDAA was enacted in two thousand three. The FY two thousand six NDAA was enacted in two thousand and six. Like I'm confused, and if I'm confused, I mean, I, yeah. I like to think that if I'm confused. Right. Lots of people. Are so confused. the budgeteers are on top of it, but the rest of us are struggling, and there's a lot of non-budget stuff in these things. Um, right, anyway, so, sorry, that was, so that here, was just a random. Here's for institututionalizing the practice of naming these things every something time. other than well, NDA for some right. year that is this one, and for all of us to get into the habit of using those names. That's the other deal. Even when yes. there is a name, mostly we don't use it. True. Um, all right. Well, so anyways, there is sorry. this requirement of updating the legal architecture for uses of force, and this resulted in a filing that then was released publicly. Um, and I'm going to I'm going to read from the it's a two page. I'm going to read from the key parts of it as I go along here, um, skipping over the opening paragraph, which says what happened and and the purpose behind it. I guess I could cite that the purpose of the action, quote, purposes, quote, were to protect U.S. personnel to deter Iran from conducting or supporting further attacks against United States forces and interest to degrade Iran's and Quds force backed militia's ability to conduct attacks to end Iran's strategic escalation of attacks on and threats to United States interests. Okay, that's not the legal claim. The next paragraph is the legal claim. It opens with Article 2. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of partially quote, kind of paraphrase, and I guess you'll just have to trust I'm being accurate here because I want to read the whole thing to everybody. So mercifully, here's the short version. Article 2 empowers the president as commander-in-chief to direct the use of military force to protect the nation from an attack or threat of an imminent attack and to protect important national interests. Stop there. That's actually a, a good shorthand summary of sort of three heads of Article Two authority um, that have been asserted in various ways over time by, by various administrations of both parties. Um, first, you've got the national self-defense uh, in, in response to an actual attack. So the, here, it's not imminent. You're not guessing. There's, there's 
been bloodshed and this is this is a response to prevent further continuous bloodshed or to put a stop to the bloodshed etc um that in the abstract i would argue is a very well settled piece of the article 2 authority um when you move beyond the responding to an actual attack to the anticipating an imminent attack then I think everyone more or less would agree that if you really mean strictly imminent in a layperson's understanding of what imminent means, most people, not everybody, but most people would agree that there's some ability to, to preempt that attack and that the battle is actually over what are the boundaries of how far in advance, how certain do you have to be, how serious does the threat have to be. That's where the battle is. So I would consider that to be two sides of the same national self-defense coin. Uh, and then there's the separate idea where it's you're not claiming there's national self-defense either already occurring or is about to occur, but rather there's some other important national interest at stake. And this is the sort of argument we saw, for example, with, with the Libyan intervention and the early stages of the uh, Islamic State intervention before the AUMF argument got brought into it. And, and that's its own set of arguments that partake of the claim or proceed from the claim that the use of force involved is not actually rising to the level of war anyways. Whereas with the national self-defense arguments, you're not claiming that it's not war. You're claiming that it's a part of war where the president has Article II authority to act without pre-approval from Congress. So the filing opens with a gesture towards all three of these without directly invoking them in that first sentence. Then it goes on to say, Article 2, thus authorizes the president to use force against forces of Iran, a state responsible for conducting and directing attacks against United States forces in the region. Okay, now it pivots there and goes on to the AMF, but we need to stop and figure out what kind of claims being made about Article 2. They reference those three authorities I just laid out, but then they don't say which, maybe it's all, maybe it's one or two of them. They don't, they, they're strategically or purposely, I think, ambiguous about which of those heads of authority they're claiming. But they just say that Iran has conducted and directed attacks and is conducting and directed attacks against the United States forces in the region, which as a general descriptive statement is true. I don't think there's any doubt that Iran has done that at times. The interesting question is, is this a claim that goes back years and years? Is it a claim that's referring to the events of the past fall of 2019? Um, and, and if so, is it is it an accurate claim? Um, if it's a claim about what has currently been happening, in, in other words, if it's a claim that there is a current ongoing series of uses of force by Iranian agents against U.S. forces, then that's a national self-defense claim. And it's not an anticipatory national self-defense claim. It's an ongoing national self-defense claim. Uh, on the other hand, if it's all predicated on things that happened during the uh, the early years of the war in Iraq, um, there's a serious question about how long whatever defense authorities may have been activated then, uh, how long the staying power of those claims really are. None of that is addressed here. So we are, I guess what I'm building towards is this. This filing doesn't really tell us what the Article Two claim of the administration is. True. And indeed, they may not have a, a firm understanding because we keep getting these mixed messages. So this is what I was trying to say before about the shift, like the, you know, one would think that if there had been a firm legal understanding at the time of the strike, we wouldn't be getting so many sort of, Bob, I don't want to say conflicting, but at least um, not obviously consistent or to some degree inconsistent messages from the administration about what it views the source of its authority as. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong in the abstract with relying upon multiple potential independent sources of authority. 
But this feels more like, you know, a little bit of a whack-a-mole. Like, you know, it's one of them. Yeah, it's and so what's I, I agree that it's it's of course ridiculous that you get mixed messages in the president being who he is certainly uh, as fuel to the fire by saying who knows what all the time. Um, it's clear that in the rhetoric, not the formal legal claims, but in the rhetoric of explaining things early on, there was constant reference to the idea of the imminent attack authority, that's right. and that's disappeared from the discussion to some degree. You're you're, you're seeing so, you know it's 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 referenced here vaguely, vaguely, but, but we don't know, and, and that that's so interesting because as I've argued elsewhere, it's it's hardly obvious that that was their best or necessary argument. They may have it may be that their best available argument that might have been the right one was an ongoing continuing attack scenario, but they're not really making that case very effectively. Critically, though, they're not re- they're not hanging their hat entirely on Article 2. They go on to specify not the 2001 post-9-11 AUMF, but the 2002 Iraq AUMF. And they're making here, they're really doubling down on the claim that there is broad, continuing, and sweeping authority that I would describe as a claim that the 2002 Iraq AUMF empowers more or less perpetual authority to use force in the vicinity of of Iraq as long as it has to do with the stability of Iraq. Um, and that is a strikingly broad and sweeping claim that's been you know much criticized, and they're doubling down on it here. Uh, now, th- there's a little bit more we could go into, but I think uh, the, the last two things I want to say about it, there's a, there's a paragraph at the end about international law that basically says this, here they say, this was a national self-defense Article 51 situation, quote, in response to a series of escalating armed attacks that Iran and Iran-supported militias had already conducted against the United States. Now, notice right there, insofar as that's their position in Article 51, there's no reason to think that isn't also their position factually as, as to the Article 2 domestic law self-defense claim. So I think that sentence suggests that they are, in fact, making the argument that I was just saying is probably their best available argument. That is, that Iran really is, in, through covert action, carrying out kinetic attacks, and it's been escalating. Um, they pointed out that uh, in the final sentence, second, the penultimate sentence here says, the United States reported the airstrike to the United States United Nations Security Council on January 8th, blah, blah, blah. The threat of further attack existed. Of course, the inherent right of self-defense was justified by the series of attacks that preceded the January 2nd strike. They're much clearer talking about that than they are about the entirely, or right. at least for these purposes, entirely parallel question of Article 2. Um, but this does not seem to have been all that thoroughly lawyered, either as a either as a matter of, look, we're complying this only to the extent we really have to. We're not going to actually write a whole white paper, which is probably a fair description of what their motivations were and why it comes out as cursory as it does. Um, but you get the glimpses here. In any event, uh, this will continue to be fought over, I assume, and hope there will be some serious hearings to press I for specific— you know, the, We talked last week about the Kane War Powers Bill, right, that passed the Senate. Uh, eight Republicans crossed over and mm-hmm. voted with the Democrats. Yeah, the Libertarian, you know, Rand Paul, Mike Lee, the, yeah. One of them is a Libertarian. Um, <laughs> well, the, okay, fair, go. Or how about this? One of them is a consistent libertarian. Oh, there you go. Um, and it's not Rand Paul. Um, and the uh, but so so it looks like that bill will pass the House, and the president will veto it, and then you know whoever votes to override first will fail. Um, yeah. <laughs> so maybe they don't. Even much like it. the much like the national emergency declaration for the border wall, which by the way turned one on Saturday. Oh, is that right? Yes. Saturday was the first anniversary of President Trump's border wall national emergency. Did either House actually try to muster a two thirds? They did. They did. 
Okay. Yeah, I the, just didn't it, know if they just left it there. No, no, no. They the, couldn't the, get it. The, the vote to override failed in the House. Yeah, yeah. And so presumably something similar will happen. That's what yeah. we're heading toward here. Yep. Um, well, before we jump off this topic, should we note the uh, forced resignation of John Rood um, as the Under Secretary of Defense for Policy? Um, so, uh, uh, news this morning that pre- at, at President Trump's request, so for once, President Trump actually did this the like, right way. Called the process. He, he didn't fire the guy on Twitter. He, he let it be known that he would like the guy to resign and the guy obliged. Um, that's how it's supposed to work. So when what, you serve at the pleasure of the president. And what was the issue that under, so, underdirted all that? I mean, the, the sort of the broad issue is apparently a sense that, um, Rude was not necessarily fully on board with the Trump agenda. Um, which, you know, in, in the most abstract terms is a perfectly legitimate reason for the president to ask someone. Absolutely. But, right. But if you want to be a little bit of a conspiracy theorist, um, one of Rude's briefs, one of the things under his ambit was certifying to Congress, Ukraine's eligibility for security assistance. Um, and so, (laughs) you know, it is not hard to, it certainly at least looks to those who want it to look that way. Like this is yet more fallout from the, you know, Ukraine imbroglio and the president cleaning house of all those who dared to, you know, stand up to him. Well, I I know we'll talk about this in Trumplandia, but, you know, after the Mueller investigation, there was sort of this wave of commentary and speculation under the heading of Trump unbound. Like he's Mm -hmm. now unleashed. Well, Post- he learned his lessons as Senator Collins. All right. So post-impeachment, of course, it's even more so. And yes. we've obviously been seeing loads of this. Yes. Look, and, and the abiding lesson is that the framework into which he came into, the, the framework of powers and authorities, both constitutional and delegated by statute, handed over to this office are sweeping and powerful. And it's to the extent that it's been OK over time, it's because there's certain uh, senses of norm compliance and etiquette and, and personal character so, and you rip all those away and you find out that a person who really wants to drive hard on their agenda can do some nasty shit absolutely well i mean they, <laughs> not they, your words <laughs> no you're right i mean i agree with that something as to some application yeah. sure um but it's just showing you look this is what the office's powers are yep. and you've got someone now who's willing to show you exactly what it can be this is why when John Hughes is writing this book that's going to come out right. this year sometime, the theme of it apparently is going to be that you know Trump is actually like the, the biggest defender of the Constitution, and people laugh and chuckle at that. But but the point of it is, if you think that what the Constitution does is creates this entire and creates All a unitary executive, executive yeah. who's got these tools yeah. and doesn't have to comply with the constraints of norms and other things that have been put into place over the years, well then you would look at him and say like, yeah, well now there's someone using the full powers of the office. So so there's not to that end. And maybe we'll maybe we'll do Trumplandia first and Garcia yeah, Soto yeah, next. Good. So to that end, there's an op-ed in this morning's Washington Post um, by South Texas law professor Josh Blackman about why the Roger Stone pardon was perfectly appropriate, um, and sort of pointing to President Jefferson's uh, communications with the prosecutor, with the federal prosecutor who was uh, conducting leading the Aaron Burr treason trial as proof that this has always happened. And this kind of stuff is just, you know, it's 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 what it comes with presidential power and we should not be so bothered by I it. I hear two different issues there. There's yes. there's the presidential pardon power, which is plenary yes. and sweeping in all these no, ways. No, no, no. The, the op-ed is about the president's power to interfere with ongoing okay, totally, prosecutions. Totally. Okay, so we're not talking about the pardon, no, no, of, no, no, no. The, the wave of pardons. We're talking about interference with and putting pressure on prosecutors to drop certain yes. cases. yes. Or, or to advance certain cases, yes. as the case may be. Hashtag no problem. Well, so the, the interesting thing, we've talked about this some, we already, have. of course, but it, it is so interesting because it's a good example, I think, of 
being forced to confront what it really means for the president to have certain powers that he may well really have. Mm-hmm. So the president says on the tarmac, some quote I saw, he was talking to reporters. And he I'm the, the chief camp- law enforcement officer. Well, and, he, and he is because the law enforcement function is, is part of the executive power. And he's the only one, the only officer in whom the Constitution vests the executive power. That can't be gainsaid that the executive power lies with him. That doesn't mean we like or should be happy about the resulting state of affairs or that what he did was in any way defensible in interfering with the independence of prosecutors. What it does show to me is it forces us to recognize that the constitutional structure isn't set up in a way that guarantees the independence of prosecution, which is, I think, a desirable policy framework. It's not necessarily the one we've we've got. So I agree with that. I, I want to say two things. One, I'm not sure it is quite as clear as you make it that there's a straight line from the president's take care clause authority to the president's un- indivisible authority to execute the laws. Because um, the the relevant laws we're talking about are laws passed by Congress. And the only thing Congress has ever said about this is to create a cabinet department, the Department of Justice. Well, sorry, that comes later. To create a position first in Section 35 of the Judiciary Act of 1789, the attorney general, right. whose job is to enforce the laws. Yeah, now, it used to be kind of departmentless, except for a couple of clerks. For like for decades. Um, now, the I, there's it's clear that the attorney general is a principal officer who serves at the pleasure of the president. But it is not clear to me, actually, that the president is, in fact, the chief law enforcement officer. It is clear that he has an independent obligation to take care of the laws are faithfully executed. It's also clear to me that the attorney general has an independent statutory obligation to take care that the laws are faithfully executed if you trace it all the way back to Section 35 of the Judiciary Act. And so I don't know, you know, it seems to me that the Attorney General really does serve two masters. Um, And, you know, I've said this before about the Solicitor General, um, and that, you know, there ought to be, and there historically have been moments where the Attorney General cannot simultaneously serve two masters and therefore resigns. Um, See Elliot Richardson and the Saturday Night Massacre. So I'm not sure there's more than a semantic difference between us about whether the phrase chief law enforcement officer has has a meaning in the way that commander-in-chief does. But if, if, if the ultimate question is, is the president allowed to make the sorts of decisions that we would agree the attorney general yeah. as the head of the department is if we think the answer is possibly no in some circumstances. Now, there are I'm not making a claim the president can make whatever decisions they want because there are constitutional rights. There are other structural limitations on what the president, what any executive official can do. Just as you said, there, right. there's a there's a two masters issue in that respect. But I'm not sure it can be the case that you could constitutionally create an institution that wields the prosecutorial and law enforcement function that is truly insulated from the president to the extent that the president is not allowed. I agree with that. Or, yeah. No, no. I, I, so I, I think the distinction between us is semantic. Okay, yeah. um, but, but I do want to say, I mean, one thing that Josh writes in his column, I want to quote this, is that Trump's constitutional authority allows him to punish his enemies or reward his friends. And <laughs> I just want to say... That's just not true because in addition to the president's take care clause responsibility, there's an oath. There's an oath. Yeah, yeah, and the completely. Oath, I'm 100%, right? 100%. And, so, and so I just, you know. No, you don't, you, unless, you, unless you think that the Constitution takes no notice of such uh, corrupt right, right. and inappropriate motivations – then if you think that, then of course, yeah, the, the, then this part, in the same way, let's let's pivot over to the pardon power, right? The pardon power... But I just want to say, the, the, the good ship enabler is crowded this morning. <laughs> the Shirley Temple reference, I was not expecting that. So <laughs> compare and contrast with the pardon power. Yeah. 
plenary in its right. nature. Yes. Can it be used to re- be? Can it be used to reward your friends? Uh, right. Yeah. It right. Looks like so. I mean, and not just your friends. Can it be used to reward people who have given you substantial campaign donations? Right. Well, I, I think then you you get into it's an interesting question. Can you? Is it not bribery? Would it not be bribery if you had someone came and say, "Mr. President, I think it here is ten million dollars." If you, I think if that you was the, the figure to pick a number from the abstract. Yes, uh, and I would like you to, to provide uh, my right. friend with the pardon. But so we talked about this before, right? And so so Chief Justice. So there is a limit. I don't think so, right? Mm-hmm. So Chief Justice Taft in Ex Parte Grossman, a, a decision that I think doesn't get enough attention in the con law canon, and maybe making a comeback. Um, Ex Parte Grossman is nineteen twenty five. It's Taft on the pardon power. Um, and, you know, Chief Justice and former President right. William Howard Taft. Um, and what Taft says is it's not that the pardon power can't be abused. It's that the pardon pa- the pardon itself is absolute. Um, right, right, right. There's no unwanted. You can't vacate you can't, the pardon right, that, like, like the, the Yazoo Land Grant scandal from Fletcher v. Peck. Exactly so. Um, wow. That's that? a, oh, we taught that That's an old chestnut. Um, you can't you, – the, the pardon power is absolute, but that doesn't mean that the president is unaccountable right. – for abusing it, and indeed, Taft specifically says those kinds of corrupt pardons, or in the case that Taft was worried about specifically, pardons to defeat judicial process, right, would be grounds for impeachment. Right. Oh, uh, is, does that mean that you could actually impeach someone on grounds of abuse that aren't just standalone prosecutable uh, criminal offenses? Are you just trying to get my blood up? I mean, are you just, are you just trying to piss <laughs> no, me off? Now? No, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to double down on an area of agreement. But so this goes, so this so this dovetails as you suggest with the pardons and commutations that we saw what Monday. Yeah, um, no, it's 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 hilarious. My, the kids were like, wait, what's going on here with this, you know, Blagojevich, he was on The Apprentice, and like everything is like, again, one of those episodes where the, the script writer presents this, and his, like, editors, and his editors were obliged to say, no, that's, you cannot have Rod Blagojevich get a part, and, and Milken, just as like this like, Milken, icon right. from the but, 80s. So here's what I just want to say, so the, the, you know, the White House and the President's Defenders, as, as is their want... Um, are saying, you know, the president is committed to, you know, alleviating harshness in federal sentencing. No, boy, and it's just like, on, you know what? On, like I said this before, I'm going to say it again. Stop pissing on me and telling me it's raining. <laughs> like, right? This is the same president who thinks we should be executing drug dealers. No, no, no. He's all about um, anti-corruption because, you know, there's a whole thing where he's interested in something in Ukraine. All right. Look, so, so there are two different problems here. One is, one is the president's all for draconian sentences. Now I'm just pressing your buttons. No, no. But one is the president president's all for draconian sentences when it's brown people or crimes that, you know, he hasn't committed, right? Um, and two, he's all for investigating, you know, non-corruption, but when it comes to actual corruption proven beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury of Americans, no. So I quibble with the first part of that without trying to argue that Donald Trump <laughs> is in any way sort of... A uh, corruption fighter. No, no, I, I completely concede all that. But the, 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 the line about tagging him with there being a race element, I will simply say this. They have supported this. Yes, this the uh, first this step le- back. And, absolutely. Yes, right. and, and, there's, and there's a real, uh, I think if a different president passes that, that gets celebrated a lot more. I, I certainly agree. I, I, think that, I think that this president has no credibility. Sure. No, that's that, the problem. And that as a result, even the few things he does that actually probably are laudable as a policy yeah, matter. He just doesn't get a lot of. Yeah. Well, you know, people are, I think, understandably suspicious of even the stuff that actually is probably good. Um, and and we should be able to concede that, right? Yeah. I mean, I think no, we used to early. I think in the first year of the Trump yeah. administration, we we would frankly note if something good is done, right. let's let's not throw the baby out right. of the bathwater. Right. And that. so I think I actually do think there is a small a small modicum of the criminal justice reform stuff he's done that actually is salutary. Yeah. But you know, don't try to tell me he's a crusader no, against. No, no, that, that part's you know, obviously I mean, just, just that's stop. obviously you know, and, and and indeed, 
you know, this kind of cronyism, I, just, I don't know how you unwind that clock. So right. we are super pressed Speaking for time today. I actually clocks. have to stop super early. Let's quickly note the, the Section 1114 oh, that case. One. Right. So so this is the case of United States versus Garcia uh, Jose Sota. Garcia Sota, um, one of two people convicted for this horrific murder of ICE agents in Mexico. Got a lot of attention. They were convicted on multiple charges. One of them was the uh, extraterritorial application of the, the general federal offense of murdering a U.S. government official. And the D.C. Circuit, uh, in, in a break with other circuits, concludes that um, there's just not sufficient evidence of congressional intent to make that one extraterritorial. Um, other cases, including some high-profile ones, uh, like, uh, I, I believe, Abu Qatala, that was one of the offenses. Um, right, 1114 was an Abu was one of the, tar- the things he was charged with for, the, for Benghazi. Right, now, now that murder takes place on uh, territory, on the on embassy grounds, right? So or consular grounds, so that would that be special maritime and territorial jurisdiction to? But make I don't that, think it was charged that way. Like I'd, that. I'd be interested to know that. Like maybe that one's distinguishable. Yeah, I have to go back and look at the actual charging documents and see what they actually proved. But yeah. but all this to say, eleven fourteen is a big deal. It's a huge deal, and it it probably will be quickly amended to make clear that it's extraterritorial. But there are a number. There's an existing circuit split on this now, so it'd be interesting to see if maybe it just goes to the court. Well, I also wonder if the. I mean, the circuit split might also be grounds. You know, the panel. This is this is a little bit of a one-sided DC circuit panel. I wonder if or the government might try to take it on bonk first. I mean, the only active judge on the panel was Judge Wilkins. Yeah, that's true. I will say this: there there are a lot of people really upset, especially the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association. Um, when you are a federal official overseas in situations where you where you may well be attacked, the possibility if you have diplomatic status, a separate clearly extraterritorial statute will protect you or will provide criminal liability for for killing you. Um, it's the people like one of the two agents here who uh, did not have that status as yep. to whom you need this statute to apply extraterritorially. Right. Right. Now, now that's not to say that you can't use others. I mean, there are plenty of other statutes right. that do expressly apply extraterritorially. Right. Um, so I think, you know, going forward, I don't think this is going to really handicap the government. And also, I think, Bobby, I don't think there'd be any pushback in Congress if if you know the Justice Department pushed for an amendment to 1114 to make it expressly extraterritorial, I think that's right. They just couldn't do it. Ex- they couldn't do it ex post facto. Well, that, that's yeah. right. But but I still think there are other offenses. You know, it, it's hard to think of cases where 1114 is the only available charge. Um, right. Right. But but I do want to say that I I think there's there's a broader conversation here about the Supreme Court's recent obsession with cabining the extraterritorial scope of statutes and how this might be um, properly understood as an unintended uh, um, uh, consequence. Right. Uh, now, and, and if the upshot of that consequence is that Congress is forced to yeah. pay attention when it's legislating. That's useful. And maybe even going back through the record and saying, all right, let's look at them all. And here's a cleanup act to say which ones we mean to be extraterritorial and which not. That's good for predictability I in the law. I completely agree with that. But I think, in, you know, we don't talk a lot about, we, we don't sort of, we, we, we tend not to go deep on like theories of statutory interpretation on this podcast. Um, I do think that 1114 is a great example of a case where now sort of disfavored methods of statutory interpretation might have produced a different result. Because I think if you if we ask what did Congress actually, what would Congress have wanted this statute to apply to? Um, I think we might have answered that question differently as opposed to is there express evidence exactly of what Congress. Right. And, you know, sometimes that I think augurs in favor of more congressional accountability for sure. But I just think, you know, these are, here's a real world uh, um, example of how the shift in schools really does affect how we understand statutes. And, and and I think it also shows that that interpretive commitment 
doesn't necessarily cut one political way or the other, right. or one policy way or the other. In this case, it's reaching a, a result that law enforcement is infuriated by. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So, really quick, speaking of, of yeah. people being infuriated by things, um, so we want to say a quick word about so there are two different large developments in clerkship land. Yeah. Let's talk about that real quick. And, and we wanted to briefly touch that before we get frivolous with some Picard and maybe Astros nonsense. Although we, we sort of did the Astros already. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we did. Um, so um, for, for those who aren't like law school people, um, one of the real common paths into the profession after law school, especially if you're looking for one of the more, I, I don't know, Bobby, one of the more sort of top of the, you know, elite. So, or I want to put that in, in quotes, quote, elite, unquote, right, paths into the legal profession. I'd, I'd say that's, it's, it's widely considered to be a gateway, a critical yeah. um, uh, certification. Is, is to clerk for a judge for one or two years after law school. Um, and the sort of, you know, which judge you clerk for is often viewed fairly or not, and I think often not, as a proxy for just sort of like, as yet further a proxy of like how how well you stack up against your peers. And so, you know, if you clerk for like a, an especially fancy um, federal circuit judge, right, that, that might look especially attractive to a hiring partner at a law firm. I, w- I would say that if you're on a, if you're in a Supreme Court clerkship, yeah. it is indisputable that that is a, a golden ticket. And the, the, and the Supreme career. Court itself tends to only hire from a subset of lower court of lower federal right. court clerks. So the feeder the feeder judges, right. and so the circuit court clerkships are extremely valuable. Yep. Um, they're Some, great experiences, right. and they're and, and for the most part, that is a uh, treated as a strong proxy for right. quality. District court, by extension, is really good, but not they're not as scarce. So there's this sort of like uh, curve. Um, but they're also very different. I mean, the district court's a trial court. Where, completely right, different Whereas the circuit court is like, you know, sit in your chambers all day and just sort of think about yeah. law. And I, did, I did both of these, and I, I learned I did one. so much at the district court level, stuff I did not know from law school. And the circuit court experience was, was also awesome. I clerked for two wonderful judges, Lewis Kaplan of the Southern District of New York uh, at the trial court level and Robert Sack of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York. At the appellate level, and loved both those gentlemen so much. Still do. They're great judges, and it was a great experience. And and definitely in both cases, it, it definitely was useful yeah. from a career perspective. Yeah. Obviously, but but the learning was great. Now, but th- so there's this market. There's sort of this all, all the top. So problem number one. So, so wanting to so, do this. So problem number one is the so so the the two problems that have been in the news lately. One is the the collapse of the latest effort to create a fair hiring process for clerks. And then the other has been particular allegations of um, misconduct, especially in the context of sexual harassment and um, uh, sex-based mistreatment of clerks um, against an array of judges. I think the most prominent example was now former Ninth Circuit Judge Alice Kaczynski, but in the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of, um, I think, really disturbing um, um, reports out there about Judge Stephen, the late Judge Stephen Reinhardt. Yeah, no, that, um, that was a bombshell. Yeah, and and so I, I want to sort of briefly take these in order because I, I I think they actually are, they're not related, but they're not completely unrelated, right? So on the process part, I think what's frustrating about the process part is the judges are all competing with each other. Um, and in the old days, you know, the principal constraint on how many applicants a judge received was we were doing this all by paper. I mean, when you and I applied for clerkships, you know, we had to like physically print out X mm-hmm. copies of our materials and physically take them to the mail and physically. And so it was just not realistic to apply to. I don't know. I applied to, I think, maybe 35 yeah, judges. Yeah, it was about the same. I, there were a couple of cities 
and, and the judge, the federal judges in those cities. I think I applied in New York, Chicago, and San Francisco. So and, and in some in Texas too. So now, um, now that it's all online, right through Oscar, um, I don't remember what that stands for. Um, the clerkship app, online system for clerkship applications and recommendations. That's maybe. what it is now. Um, so now it's all online. Everyone applies to like hundreds and hundreds of judges, and so the judges have become even more aggressive and I think constrained in both how they figure out even whom to interview and the timing of those interviews. You, you have almost no choice but to use heuristics and proxies. I'll, I'll pick these schools. I'll look at the people with this grade. I'll call Professor So-and-so at, at X or, Yeah, or I'll rely on my network of people that I trust who have actually spent time with these students. Uh, I don't know what other alternative they've got to come through the pod. Yeah, and so I think the result has had – this has had, I think, two really negative consequences on the clerkship process. One, it has pushed it even ever earlier – yeah. To a point where judges have ever less information. I mean, yeah. you know, the yeah. notion that you're hiring people for clerkships based on one year of law school grades. Yeah. Just I know it's it's very it's very similar to the talent chase in sports with yep. college recruiting, yep. trying to trying one and to done. Help. Yeah, everything about it. Yeah. Um, but two, it also puts an incredible amount of pressure on the student applicants to gravitate toward the judges perceived as elite because oftentimes there's a correlation between who's hiring first. So, you know, one of the, there, there have now been three different efforts to impose a system-wide hiring plan where the judges would abide by particular time limits. And it was always a handful of, as you say, the feeder judges, the, the most prestigious yeah. appellate the judges. Ones who have their pick. Right, who would go first. And the second they start hiring, all of the students freak out because they hear that so-and-so, Judge Kaczynski or Judge Kavanaugh is interviewing my classmate. And all the other judges hear, oh, they're hiring. I better start now, too. And the plan falls apart. And so what this does is this actually has the effect of dramatically privileging the, the, the clerkships that are perceived of as fancier. I, I don't know if I agree with that in, in, for the following reason. I feel like the ones that are perceived that way – it's overdetermined. Like everybody already wants those clerkships. There's a I, but whatever. Why, but why? So there, so there are two possible why? reasons because why. Because they're feeder judges. So one is because they're feeders, right? But I, I, mean, I clerked for two circuit judges, neither of whom are feeders, right? The other is because you know you've decided that that judge is the best fit for you, either because you know you're going to enjoy the experience or because it's going to look the best on your resume, right? Yeah, so I mean, I, there are plenty of people who go to clerk for circuit judges, knowing that those judges have never sent anyone to the Supreme Court. Yeah, no, for sure, no, absolutely. But I take your claim to be that um, the, the the tendency of some feeder judges to defect from these hiring plans increases the interest in those feeder judges. I don't, I don't, not, I, I'm just not persuaded that it has correlation, at, at least correlation. I, I just causation. wonder if if there's even an effect. I agree, but I also think you don't need that for your argument to criticize. Well, that's, so, so that's where I'm going. So, okay. so whether that's whether that's cause and effect or not, and I'm happy yeah. to concede that that could just be my own flawed intuition. And, and I will likewise concede I could be quite wrong. It could be a big deal. It could be a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, I think the effect is that students. Um, Certainly, this was true of my classmates, right? That that who you're clerking for became so much more important than what the clerkship was going to be like, um, right? That that sort of you know being able to say I'm clerking for X judge was such a bigger deal than whether it was actually going to be an enjoyable experience. Oh yeah. Whether you're going to get along with the judge, whether the judge was going to be someone who was going to be a you know mentor and or ally for you after you left the clerkship, and I think this is all of a piece with judges behaving badly. Because what it means is that, and, and this is not true of all judges. Some of the feeder judges are wonderful people who have never had a, a, a crass things, a cross thing said about them. But I think there were no consequences 
for, and historically there had been no consequences for feeder judges who acted like asses. I um, think that the career benefits, the perceived career yeah. benefits and the actual career benefits are so overpowering yeah. and perceived to be such that the chances of a particular judge having a harsh reputation on any dimension, whether it has something to do with gender or nothing to do with that at all, and is just, you know, abusive or hard work conditions. Pale um, in comparison to the value. Absolutely. It's just, it's just outweighed. And there's always a, a huge pool of top applicants who are willing to take that risk in exchange for getting that position. So, and, and so this is why, where I want to end, because I know, we, I know, I know you're pressed for time and we want to talk briefly about Picard, right? Yeah. But um, I, all of that's true. I think the failure is that insofar as there was good information out there about especially abusive clerkships, abusive either in ways that were gendered, um, which I think was always true about Kaczynski, and I'm increasingly coming to think was true about the Reinhardt clerkship, or abusive in the sense that it's, you know everyone's equally shat upon, right? Um, I don't know that we professors did a good enough job of ensuring that our students were going into this with their eyes open. Like that is to say, you know, if we have a student who knows that they face this potential risk and chooses yeah. Inform, to inform right, assumption uh, yeah. of risk yeah. versus not versus, you know, no, 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 that's the best clerkship for you. Oh yeah. No, if you've got a, if you've got, this isn't just, this is a general point about mentoring of, yeah. of people coming up in your field, whatever yeah. your field yeah. is. If you have reason to believe that someone's considering a job that you know will mi- involves a risk they'll be mistreated on any dimension, you have a duty to share that with the person that's considering the job. I think that that's just decency. Well, so I'll just, so I'll just tell an anecdote, and then and then I think we should we should move yeah. on. But so so I clerked for Marsha Burzon, who I love and adore and admire, who's a wonderful judge. Um, it is not the easiest clerkship. Um, she can be a demanding boss. Um, she can be a um, sometimes uh, hard to please boss. Um, it was never, I think, in a way that was unprofessional or unfair. It was just challenging. And um, at the the second my clerkship was over, I wrote a ten page evaluation of the clerkship for the Yale Career Office file on judges because there's a there's a oh, notebook in the Yale yeah. Career Office where there are very personal. So you laid it all out there. Like, and this I, is what it's like. And I, and, I, and, the, and I think the first sentence of my review was Judge Burzon is an enigma. Um, right. And, and but the rest of the review was here are all the reasons why you should clerk for her. But here are the reasons not to. Right. And and I because I thought it was incumbent upon me wow. both for my sake and for her sake and for future clerk's sake that people go in with their eyes open, right? Because it wasn't for everyone. And this is the thing about clerkship that I think gets lost sometimes. Like you are working at the elbow of a judge for a year or two. It is going to be so important how well your personalities get along that it might be worth thinking about, you know, if you interview with a judge who is perceived as more prestigious, but just don't get along with them. And you interview with a judge who may be, for whatever reason, not seen as so prestigious and you love them. Yeah. The, the life choices, yeah. the smart choices, the latter. I'll just my closing comment, and I've got to run. Yeah, and so maybe we'll, we'll say, Picard. say Picard. Although it's still good. Oh, it's yeah. Bottom line, I'm loving it. Yeah. Um. Oh, I'll say one da, thing da, about da, da, just da. my my one comment about this is 
the clerkship scenario is one, as your story just now illustrates, in which there's actually a decent shot that somebody's going to provide that in information to you. Think about how little that is true about the broad world, just, just staying within law schools, of going to firms. Yep. There isn't that centralized repository of information because the, the universe of potential bosses, partners at places you might work for, it's so much harder and the risk is so much well, greater. This, this but me, that's true of workplaces in general. I mean, this to me is the one virtue of above the law, right? So, so you and I came of a Age, right, right when above the law was getting launched, right, and we even I I, rem- I fondly remember well, I fondly I remember its predecessor, right, underneath their underneath their robes, much um, better time. Um, well, it was a different kind of blog, um, and I actually think that the one great virtue of above the law is as a repository for anonymous tips from law firms. Yeah, yeah. that um, actually is is very useful. And I, mean, I guess I'm sure I'm sure there's some of it out there. I gotta go. Yeah. yeah. All right. So um, we will save Picard frivolity for next week. My one line about that in I think episode two. Did you notice in passing that there's a workplace sign? Number of days since yes. an assimilation. Yes. That was brilliant. That was pretty good. Um, it's it's quite good. Yeah. It is. Um, and we're also Karen and I have also been watching McMillions. Oh, I don't even know about that. It's a good fun, although it's a little hokey. Uh, Agent Doug is quite a guy. Um, we will be back next week with uh, a more detailed episode. I will, I will get to recap my first ever argument in emotions hearing. Good luck. Ugh. Um, and we'll talk more. We'll, we'll do a more detailed Picard exegesis. Yeah, absolutely. We'll go deep next time. We'll make the time for we'll it. We'll go deep into into space <laughs> with a 94-year-old we'll we'll guy who is... We'll go, we'll go where Picard has gone before. We'll go where a lot of people have gone before, yeah. All right. Um, anyway... Lots more to say about the clerkship stuff. We, you know, if you guys have thoughts and comments, please do send them to us. Twitter, email. We'd love to hear your reactions. Um, you know, I don't think this is the last time we should talk about this. Sure. He's at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladik. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, and you know, if we commit any crimes, I hope someone will go on Fox News and beg for a pardon. <laughs> Stay safe out there. Adios. Pardon me. Pardon. There are many good titles. Pardon the interruption. I feel like that's been used. What? All right, well, we'll come up with something.